Welcome to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. This is the place where you'll learn cutting-edge personal brand strategies from today's most recognizable influencers. We're going to teach you how to build a rock-solid reputation and then how to turn that reputation into revenue. I'm your lead host, Rory Vaden, co-founder of Brand Builders Group, Hall of Fame speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of Take the Stairs. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode on the influential personal brand. So excited to have a fellow, I would say what I'm going to say, learner, teacher, student, coach, speaker, consultant, author on the show today. Maury was referred to me by a super good friend of mine. And although Maury and I are relatively new friends, we've got a really awesome friend in common. I got introduced to her and then I was so privileged to get a copy of her book that I've started reading. I think I'm on like, I don't know, maybe a third of the way through. I'm so excited to get to talk about the book today. But to give you a little bit of a professional highlight of Maury and her background, here are just some things credentially that maybe you would want to know. I think these are really cool things. But here's like, I would say, generally speaking, we're going to talk a lot about negotiation today. And Maury is a negotiation expert. And she has worked with some of the most iconic sports leagues, Fortune 100 corporations. But she's also a teacher at the Wharton School of Business. She's also been on some major media outlets, including ESPN, Forms, Inc., Money, NPR. Like I could go on and on with professional accomplishments, but we were just having this conversation about how our bios are such a teeny tiny part of who we are, and they really don't give the full spectrum of who we are as individuals, just some professional accomplishments along the way. And so two quick things. One, Maury, welcome to the show. And two, this is my chance to let you introduce yourself and who you really are by helping our audience get to know you. And so here's my first question for you. So here's your introduction to the show and our audience. And here's what we want to know. We want to know, how did you go from, let's just say, college graduate to all of these amazing things that you've done to most recently launching this awesome book about negotiation? So we want to know, how'd you do it? Well, first of all, let me just say, just thank you for having me on the show. Whatever it is you drink in the morning, I'll have even half of it, even half of it would probably help. So your energy is awesome. Thank you for having me here. So I don't really want to go into like the really lengthy explanation of it because I feel like there's chapters of my life. Mm-hmm. I would say the first one is really all the way through college and probably a few years thereafter. Um, the daughter of Iranian immigrants, much like all the other sort of immigrant stories, your parents have all these dreams and ambitions for you. They want the very best life for you. They take all those risks and they leave behind what they know for the hope and promise of a better life for you. And so, especially sort of this, what I call Iranian guilt, you know, we sort of carry this weight with us, knowing all that's been sacrificed for you. And that sort of followed me from college. My father wanted me to be a doctor. I'm the youngest of three kids. And the first two did not go that route. So I was like the last promise, right? And so almost like living my life in a pre-programmed kind of a way. I really didn't even question it. And I went through college 
All I knew was that I was not very good at the very thing I was supposed to be doing, right? The sciences were always so hard. Yeah, you know, kind of forced my interest in a lot of them, but it was like, don't look right, don't look left, just look straight ahead. This is what you're supposed to do. And when I graduated college and took the MCAT twice, by the way, I was like, all right, wait a minute. A, I'm not good at this. B, I don't even know if this is something that I enjoy all that much. Mm. What I did enjoy was helping people. What I did enjoy through all the jobs that I'd had through like work study in college and the working in different doctor's offices. And then really my last job was at St. Louis Hospital in New York and Harlem and working in the sickle cell unit and really understanding in some ways that it was public health that I really enjoyed. And that was sort of like helping people at a macro level, not a micro level. And so there was some of that in my spirit. I just knew that being a doctor wasn't it. And so I volunteered at an amazing organization working with really high-risk individuals, drug users, sex workers, and I did basically HIV test counseling. So I was the person that spoke to them beforehand to get them tested and then spoke to them afterwards to get them their results. Wow is right. Um, really high risk population, yeah. unfortunately, was the bearer of bad news on way too many occasions, and it broke my heart. But that still sort of spoke to me, right? It was something where I felt sort of grounded. I felt I could help people in whatever small way possible, but I was doing something that meant something to me. And I enjoyed that very much so. So, fast forward that, I continued to work in public health for several years, moved on to the public health department. And after a few years, had the great privilege of starting this program that helped pregnant women who are at risk for HIV AIDS. And this is, I'm kind of going down this route because it is important, but this program that I started kind of took off and it was, the way it was fashioned was that it was basically supposed to sort of democratize access to HIV testing for pregnant women, no matter if they're race, religion, color, whatever it was. And only to be able to understand that they were HIV positive so that they can take the medications to help prevent the transmission of HIV from mother to child. And it was extraordinary, right? Again, like this was the first big breakthrough we had had in HIV AIDS. And again, you feel like you're doing something that's meaningful that you could be proud of. It sort of fed my soul in its own way. State of California came to me and I said, the great program, we'd like to do this statewide. And here's like a bunch of money for you to do it but we want you to do it. So, and I just applied to distance school after like all that, the understanding that I was not going to go to med school, I sort of found my niche. I was ready to go to business school. And then I get this opportunity and I thought business school can wait. Here's an opportunity to do something on my own. And so I left the public health department and launched my company at that point. That's sort of my first sort of entrepreneurial venture. What we did was basically a lot of education and, and social marketing campaigns at really big level for like the CDC and others. And so I was like that entrepreneur that got handed money. And I was like, wow, this was easy. Like, you know, this is... <laughs> don't we always what, like that? What's so hard about this? <laughs> this uh, entrepreneur yeah. thing. What a bunch of babies. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, but I do remember the conversation with my mom because my mom said, okay, you didn't go to med school. You got into business school. And now you're going to do this. And there was quite a bit of disappointment in that conversation. But I remember telling her that I'm not afraid. What's the worst that could happen, mom? I'll be like the most educated waitress on the face of this planet, right? Like that's what I'll go to, right? Because I realized that I really wasn't afraid. Like there was no fear in making that decision at that point. And maybe it's because I was sort of taking care of myself always. But I thought, what's the worst that could happen? And 
that was sort of the beginning of this entrepreneurial journey. Now my career has gone completely a different way, but I think it's not having fear at that outset that that's the one thing that sort of stayed with me all throughout my life. It was the whole notion of what's the worst that could happen. Just Man, to I do it. I want to pause and talk about that a minute because I really believe that fear ultimately is what holds most of us back from living out our calling and our purpose, right? It's like we get so comfortable where we are that we don't take the risk. We're afraid, like, what if it doesn't go well? And what if I, whatever. So I'm so curious, like, where did that come from? How did you cultivate that? I mean, is that something you were born with? Like, where did this unabashed lack of fear come from that allows you to do things that others don't? I think a couple of things. The first was sort of like, it was that big fear of having that conversation with my parents to begin with that said, hey, I don't want to be a doctor. I think I feared that for so long that once I had the conversation and I sort of set myself free, then it was like, I don't know if there was anything else that I feared more than disappointing them, if that makes any sense. So everything else sort of paled in comparison in some way. I thought, oh my God, I fear that for so long. And all right, what happened? Yes, they're disappointed, but I'm standing, right? And I'm now able to maybe pursue what I really want to pursue. So the freedom from that, despite all the disappointment, if I really had to think about it, was the one thing that said, look, it all kind of works out. Maybe it's not perfect. Maybe it's not exactly what you want it to be. But it works out because you have the wherewithal to sort of get through the lowest of the low. The other part of it is like having money or not having it or losing it never really scared me. I kind of felt like it was something that you just sort of could make up for. And I was very serious. I I had waitress through college, one of the best jobs I ever had. I was like, if that's what it takes, if all else goes to hell in a handbasket, that's what I'm going to do. I think it was some level of sort of humility or maybe survival mechanisms. I don't know. But that kicked in really early. And I think actually not putting so much emphasis on the where am I going to get money? Where am I, how am I going to survive? Not really thinking about that, but in some, maybe it was some naive way thinking it's going to work out some way mm-hmm. that sort of freed me of, I think one of the bigger sort of hurdles that a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly, I think people who have a family to take care of, right. That they have other responsibilities. It was me. And mm-hmm. so that maybe was an unfair advantage that I had as well. I just really had myself to sort of take care of. You know, it's interesting. In our last conversation, you said something that really resonated with me because it's a core belief. Like one of the things that is kind of like one of my life mantras is that people care much more about who you are than what you do. And one of the things that I asked you on our first conversation was, what's something that you wish people knew about you? And I had written this down for my notes in our last call. And you wrote down, I want them to know that I am not my work but I am not my work. And I'm just curious, like how much of this lack of fear really comes from, you have a really clear disassociation from your self-worth and how that's connected to your profession. It's not been easy. I've learned a lot of my lessons the really hard way as evidenced by all the stories I tell in my book. I mean, lots of scars and lots of bruises. There's been some really low lows. And in my company, for example, I've never lived through this before. None of us have really a pandemic. But we had shortly after the, well, whoa, this was really easy, was the dot-com crash. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, no, no, it really wasn't. And then, you know, then we had the Great Recession of 2007, 2009. And 
being an entrepreneur, having to lay people off, worried about, are you going to get another contract? You know, so all of that, the really low lows of sort of that economic downturn, I've gone through that. And so there were on those occasions, again, the disappointment of sort of family, right? And always knowing that I did never want to go back and say, you were right. I should have never done this. I never wanted to regret that. And so maybe it was the fear of failure that drove me in some ways. But with every one of those challenges, and some I got through and it was okay, and some I got through and heartache and breaking up with a business partner who had been a friend for so long. And you know, I would say I've never been married, but that was a really bad divorce. And what I realized is that if I continue to sort of tie who I was with what I did as a profession, then I would have been broken. Yeah. Right. And that got me kind of emotional. I would have been broken a whole lot through my life. And that was not an option. And the fact that I got through it and I didn't allow myself to be defined by those struggles, a lot easier said than done now, but it took a lot of sort of self-love and changing my own narrative, you know, so I don't want anybody to think this is easy. It's a lifelong struggle, honestly. But the more, as strange as it sounds, the more scars I got, the more bruises I got, the more hits that came my way. And I just kept getting up Mm -hmm. that I realized that my story isn't what I do for a living. My story is that of a survivor. It's somebody who, who's gotten through it all and doesn't have a darkened heart as a result of it. I'm still an optimist. I still believe that even with my business partner, I never shied away from working with people again, or, you know, I didn't walk around with a bag full of mistrust and threw it at people every time I met them. It was, I couldn't do that. And so I think that that's really important because when all is lost, it's who you are that really matters. And I've lost a lot. I decided to separate those things. I think that is such a fundamentally necessary just awareness that we have to have as human beings, much less entrepreneurs or anyone who's out there. It's like building a personal brand. It's like, I think the beautiful thing about building a personal brand is it really is about your message, not what you do. It's about what you believe and who you are and what you stand for, not about That's why I said, it's like, we both kind of have this distaste for bios. And I think that's it's like, what does that have to do with like who I am? Exactly. And it's so funny. It's, I was at a recent conference with my husband and at this conference, they were handing out these lanyards, right? And the lanyards have your name on them. And so my husband gets this lanyard and it says, Rory Vaden, comma, MBA, CSP. CPSA. <laughs> and it was like, like three other letters. And I was like, what are all of these letters? And it's like, I took this lanyard and I like marked through all of them and just wrote DAD. <laughs> it's, like, like, it's like, but it was like, like all these like credentials in these letters. And I was like, it's like, it was two lines. And I was like, this is right. absurd. And it's like, but that's what we do in society I know. and culture. And I love that. I think that's such an important thing. Like just I wanted to reiterate y'all to everyone who's listening, what Maury said. It's like, if I had attached my identity to my work, I would have been broken time and time again. We are not what we do. I think that is like one of the most important messages that we're going to hear in this interview. And it's like, 
that's going to stick with me and it'd be a constant reminder of like the work we do is hard. You're in the public face. You're laying it out. Like, you know, it's like holding Maury's book. It's like, you're putting it out there, right? You're wearing your heart and your life on your sleeve when we dedicate our message to sharing it with the world. And so one of the things that I hadn't written down, and I'm so curious, and I'm always fascinated to hear this, because if you're listening and you've ever wondered, what would it take for me to write a book? Or should I do it? It's like, I think it's really important to know. It's like, it's hard work and it is long, tedious it's going to suck the resources and a lot of times the money right out of underneath you. Here's my first question for you. It's like, at what point in your journey, right, professionally and personally, did you figure out that you wanted to write a book? Like, how did you know that? Like, and then why did you do it? So I may have to backtrack a little bit. After that whole thing with my company, I did eventually go back to business school anyway. After five years of being in my company and when I was getting ready to graduate, one of my professors who taught negotiations and was the chairman of that, the legal studies department at the time said, I think you should teach. And I thought he had lost his mind because <laughs> I am an introvert by nature. You handed me a book. I couldn't stand in front of a classroom and read off the book, much less teach. And seriously, we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he, I don't know what he saw. I don't know. I honestly couldn't even tell you. I said, I'll give this a shot, right? He said, just be my TA. And that's how it all sort of started, just to see what you think being on the other side of the classroom and not a student. That was nearly 18 years ago. I'm still teaching at Wharton. But I say that to say that sort of I talked about my life in chapters, that next chapter where sort of the teaching career began, I never imagined it. I had never, never even in my wildest dreams thought I could do it or was capable of doing it. And it was because somebody saw something in me I didn't see in myself. And I always say that to entrepreneurs, especially because I feel like we're not risk averse, right? To begin with, in a lot of ways, obviously not taking ridiculous risks, because I think a lot of entrepreneurs take quite calculated risks. But in terms of the pursuit of something that drives you that beyond which you have sort of in your daily life, right? That goal, that purpose, whatever it is. I think entrepreneurs are incredible in doing that, right? They sort of jump off that cliff that many people would never dream of doing. For me, teaching was that, right? I, somebody else saw it and I was like, you know what? I'm going to give this a shot. What's the worst that could happen, right? And that which sort of drew me, obviously, to even the subject of negotiations. And when I trusted myself, which took about three years, to stand in front of a classroom and teach it my way, right? teach it the way I saw negotiations, teach it from my perspective. And that sort of opens up everything. I won my first teaching award. I would say the first year that I actually kind of ripped up my syllabus and started teaching it exactly the way I wanted to teach it. And that sort of made all the difference in the world. So you start trusting yourself and then magic happens. The book, so years after I started teaching, I got opportunity to teach for Goldman Sachs and their 10,000 women's program which is working with female entrepreneurs globally. It's not a national program. And I helped launch the program in the American University in Cairo, Egypt, and was there for like the first three cohorts. Life-changing, amazing, female entrepreneurs, guts, conviction, all of it, right? And one of the people sort of high level at Goldman Sachs who had sort of seen sort of the outcomes of that program and was actually for the first graduation of these women came to me after several years of me being in that program and then actually teaching in the 10,000 small business program, which is where I went to next after that, said, 
whatever it is you do in that classroom, I'm not really sure what it is because I haven't sat in it, but something magical happens and something really special happens. Look at the way they respond to you. Capture it in a book. (laughs) So here's somebody else who says they see something in you. And I was never fancied myself to be an author, didn't even like writing. The best part of being pre-med was that I took tests. I didn't have to write anything, right? And so I was like, there's just no way. And moreover, there's like a million negotiations books out there. What do I have to contribute? And so I fought it again, right? I didn't trust it. And and yet he sort of planted the seed and kept coming back to me about it. And it took 10 years to get the book out, but that's only because the first four years I negotiated against myself. I was like, there's no place for you. You don't want a redundancy. You don't want to do something that's already out there. But then when I was like, wait a minute, but what these books say is so different than what you deliver mm-hmm. that don't you want people to hear that more? Don't you really want to give people that opportunity to see this topic of negotiations from a very different perspective? And I couldn't find it in anything else, to be honest with you. And until I found that opportunity, I didn't let myself dream it. And once I did, I ran out of the gate. And really started to sort of think about what I want to say and what was important, what how, capturing that message. And that was the hardest part. Once I got started, the proposal was not as hard because you sort of know at that point where your heart is and what it is that you want to deliver. I got incredibly lucky when all these publishers were like, great idea, love the book. Everything sort of fell into place, but I was my biggest obstacle <laughs> for a very long time. And so once you know, and once you know, it's a message that's so necessary, then I would say writing it wasn't actually as hard as I imagined it to be. You know, it's interesting. I think there's like a couple of things I want to kind of like circle around is one, this is a really great reminder to everyone who's listening, like writing a book does not happen in a year. It just doesn't. You said this was like a 10-year process, the first four years of negotiating against yourself. But then, like, y'all, like, take note. Like, this does not happen in a year. And if it doesn't, or two years, that doesn't mean it's not going to. But this was a very multi-year process, right? It was. So you're kind of saying, like, once you knew, like, there is a message that I have that's kind of, like, unique and different. I think this is equally as important because I think so many people struggle with, well, Everything has already been said. I have nothing else to add. So what advice would you give to someone who's talking them at themselves out of their own dream? It's like, no, honestly, I think especially for entrepreneurs, it's no different than that product that you know that there's nothing else in the market for it or whatever niche that you create or writing a book. I think that so much of it has to be your own belief in it. Because again, there are no guarantees. There's zero guarantees. So at the end of the day, can you do something that you're A, proud of? But B, that could have been and would have been and should have been, like those types of regrets that come from not having taken that risk, not living up to the promise of what you had imagined for yourself and instead sort of backing off because you didn't believe in the fact that you could actually pull it off. I think those missed opportunities to me are far scarier. That notion of the what if regret is so much more difficult to live with because you will spend the rest of your life thinking about it as opposed to doing it and maybe failing and you learn 
and then you move on. But at least you can never look back and say, what if I had? And I think so much as we can control when we get to that intersection, so much as we can control taking that turn and moving towards something and saying, Mm. what's the worst that can happen? Right. I think that's really important. And once you believe then it'll work or it won't, but you won't ever have to spend all those moments thinking, I let it slip by. Mm, that's so good. I love that. I love too. It's like the the fear of not going for it is like greater than the fear of going for it. I think right. that's so good. And I want to, I want to get to the book in just a second. I really want to learn like your insights and perspective around negotiation, because I know they're really unique. And I think a lot of people don't consider themselves good salespeople or good negotiators. We're going to change their mind on that today, but From a place of being on the other side, we celebrated 10 years of our first book coming out this year. It's unbelievable. It's been out for 10 years. But our publishing story was very different than yours. We basically prospected agents for like two years. We were borderline stalking these people until they finally were like, oh my gosh, we'll just, we'll read the proposal so you go away. Luckily, it all turned out in our favor. But from, you know, one publishing story to another, because they're all very different. I would love for you to kind of share, like, what has your journey been? Like a real life perspective for the listener out there who's going, I do feel that calling on my heart. I do have that message that I know it's it's unique and different and my audience needs to hear it. And I don't know how to go about doing this. Like, what do you mean you just called a publisher or what what did you do? So kind of give us like your perspective. I mean, this is somewhat fresh, right? Mm-hmm. So still top of mind for you. What was that process like? And what would you tell someone to do? Who's like, no, I really, I have the calling to write a book on my heart. Like, what would you tell right. them to do to get it out there? I got an agent before I even knew I was going to write a book, right? We, I had the sort of good fortune of meeting this person and as friends and really sort of relied on him all along the way especially in those four years. And he understood where I was coming from because he respected the fact that I didn't just want to write another book and Mm -hmm. didn't have sort of something that was different and fresh and new because he would have to stand by it. So I think that was crucial. One, in getting me to focus in a way that could bring this book sort of to market successfully and would be something that people would want to buy from testing who my audience would be to all of that, right? All agents, they are great at something, right? It could be lawyers. They could be whatever it is that work on your behalf. In this case, he was somebody that knew the publishing world and had a great eye for these things. So I relied on him to sort of take me through those early stages. And then it was, I think, his relationship with the publishing world that got me, honestly, the type of an advance that was huge. They did an auction basically over my book, right? Like who would have ever imagined that? There was like more than one person who wanted to get behind this book. And it was a proposal at that point. And so they believed. And I think that the reason why that worked is because relationships had existed, right? There was a tremendous amount of respect between all these publishing houses and my agent. He led me to a place that I could proudly stand behind something and sell it. And this is the kind of thing where you have to have some level of humility. You may know a lot, you don't know everything. And I knew nothing about that world. I probably have even learned much more about it. Wish I had known more before actually this book was published. Would I do some things different again? Absolutely. It's been a learning process all along. There's a lot to it. But 
an agent. He was my eyes and ears and then really promoted me in a way that I would probably would never have been able to do on my own, I think. Same. It's like, we knew that we had to get an agent if we wanted to do the traditional publishing route. We knew that. And that's why we spent two years <laughs> prospecting and stalking our particular agent that finally signed us. And the crazy thing was, is it took us two years to get an agent. And once we had an agent and fine tune the proposal, it took us less than two weeks to sell it. I think a lot of that is, it comes down to relationships and reputation, mm-hmm. right? But I think one of the things that I think is really important is so often I hear this from a lot of clients in the Brand Builders Group community, and they think that writing a book is how they build their content. And that's not how you do it. And I love your story and your journey in this because you've been building and fine-tuning your set of content for like 20 years, right? And it's like, you already knew what was going to go in this book. Now, chapters and frameworks and all of that, I'm sure we're a part of this process. But the beautiful thing is, it's like you had already been teaching this. You were already known for this. You were already experiencing the lives that were being transformed because of it. Other people were noticing it. It's like you were already associated with this topic and with this content way before it ever showed up in a book. Would you agree with that? Completely. Your example and hearing what you all did you had your content as well, right? It was, actually, the story is not all that different, right? Because you knew you wanted the book. Whereas me, I had to talk myself into that. But once you kind of those parts connect, then it's you go. And the reason why it's not painstaking is because we had all the content, yeah. right? So the book becomes the packaging of that or the making it almost accessible mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, let me figure out what I'm going to say as I write this. Now, if I go on to book number two or whatever it is from there, it's because of what you've learned then, the content that you've developed, maybe even after the fact, or all that you couldn't fit into the first one. But the content has to exist so that you can package it and again, make it accessible, give it to the people who would never have taken your class or had the opportunity to see you all in action or work with you, right? It's the accessibility of that, that I think the book becomes as opposed to, to your point, the other way around. I totally agree. It's like, we get approached all the time. Like, well, when are you guys going to write your book on personal branding? And, you know, our message for the last four years has been, it's like our philosophy is the book is the final product, not the first product. It's like, we've been fine tuning our methodologies and our processes and, tweaking it. And it's like, when the book comes, you'll know that everything is just where we think it should be. It's the final product, not the first product. Right. I think there's a trend right now is that people create a book to then sell their services. And we're kind of like, no, you need to go sell the services. Right. Speak on this, train on this, consult on this. You need to like be doing it, living it, then go write the book. Right. Absolutely. Which is what you've done. And to me, That is what makes me want to read a book like this is because it's not your first rodeo. This is your 1000th rodeo. So let's talk about bring yourself. I want to talk about this. It's how to harness the power of negotiation to negotiate fearlessly. So what is negotiation? Because I think that's like one of those terms that people use that can kind of be frightening. So for all of our listeners who are like, oh man, I I can't negotiate. I'm not a negotiator. What is your definition of negotiation? So it's something we do all the time. 
Like literally from the moment you get up in the morning to the moment you go to sleep at night, you know, that's your parent. But regardless of that, every time you make a decision with yourself, even, you know, I always say pros and cons lists are masterful negotiations, right? Because you're thinking all the reasons why not and all the reasons why everything from family conversations, kids, business partners, vendors, I mean, you name it, it's all a negotiation. So literally people hear the word and they're so anxious and they think they're bad at it. And I'm like, how could you possibly be bad at it? You, you do this all day long, every day. And it's literally those transferable skills that we use that I teach in class that is no different than everything else that you use every day that makes negotiations what it is, right? So it's not meant to be scary. It's not conflict-ridden necessarily. Those such a small slice of that pie. Yes, there are difficult conversations. Yes, there are bad deals. That's life. But the majority, again, if you think about it in the context of if this is like the soundtrack of our lives, how could it all be conflict? It's not. The majority are problem solving and collaboration and they build relationships, not break them up. And it's life. It literally is every part of our life and so important as a result. Hi, it's AJ Vaden, and thanks for listening to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. Did you know that the ideas we share on the show are things we actually specialize in helping you implement? If you want to raise your public profile and turn your reputation into revenue, please visit freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for a free brand strategy call with one of our personal brand strategists. Again, that's freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for your free call. Talk to you soon. So what would you say makes someone a good negotiator? I think that we've seen a lot of movies and sort of public profiles that show sort of these really brash negotiators in your face, sort of combative, very aggressive. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of been, I think, what a lot of people consider, sort of that character that they consider to be great negotiators, right? And there's certainly, and I know plenty that are that way, right? They espouse those characteristics. But then there's a whole other world of people that are so different, right? Everything from like amazing diplomats to... You know, I quote Nelson Mandela in my book to plenty of other people that that have got those characteristics, but something quite different in so far as they're empathetic and they're respectful and they are about sort of consensus building and, and collaboration. And so I've come to the conclusion that it's not one type of person that makes for a great negotiator. I think the great negotiator is the person who's their authentic self. And understands that this is a skill that is learned, right? We're not born great negotiators. And the more you do it, the better you become. But I think a really big part of that is the level of authenticity and believing that person that's coming to the table, that, you know, how you show up, that gives you the confidence to be a great negotiator. And then all the other things I could tell you, like the characteristics, I believe that the best negotiators are incredibly curious, that they use negotiations not as an opportunity to be so self-assured that they think they have nothing else to learn, but they come to the table curious with sort of that blend of confidence and humility that says, I'm confident with who I am and what I bring here, but I'm humble enough to know that 
there's a lot to learn always. And so the open mind, the open heart, empathy, you know, where again, it's that level of curiosity about the person you're negotiating with to understand their journey, how they've gotten here so that you can appeal to their sense of values and order. Those are the things that we don't often see celebrated because again, the character that we see in our heads about the movies that we watch, the great negotiators are never seen as like the real kind, respectful, you know, empathetic person. It's so wrong because I think there's a place for everybody, but in my mind, in my heart, I just believe that great negotiators are those that make room for other people and trust that that conversation and that approach where it considers both sides is really the best one. Mm, I think that's really good. I actually have a really difficult conversation coming up later this week that's going to require some financial negotiation. And that's a really great reminder for me right now is like, I need to come to this quote unquote negotiation table really seeking to understand like, where are you coming from? Why do you feel this way? Really seek to understand the other person in order for me to even have a fighting chance at finding a happy medium win-win situation. Yeah, because I mean, first of all, knowing all that you bring to the table, right? That's sort of the most important part. The reason why my book is called Bring Yourself is because I believe the hardest part of all of this is to really understand their own value. That conversation you have to have with yourself at first, right? Who you are, what you stand for, what your values are, what your conviction is, the things that are sort of the non-negotiables, which have little or nothing to do with money, by the way. It's what you stand for, right? And, And once that's sort of understood and you could speak, you can be your own sort of best advocate, then I feel like everything else sort of falls into place, right? Because everything else becomes some kind of tactic or strategy. But the hardest part is that breaking through those really negative things that we say, you just said fighting chance, which I would never see somebody like you who's accomplished all that you've accomplished, even think that that's how they should think about this. Of course, you have a fighting chance. Of course. I mean, are you crazy? Right. But it's like, no, I mean, the minute you think that that you have to sort of even fight to have the chance. Like I would abolish all that. I would put that away because the truth is it will not take you that long to understand why you're supposed to be there in the first place and ask for what you're worth, right? That should not take very long. But the other part of that is that negotiations is all about influencing somebody, mm-hmm. persuading somebody. How on earth would you ever be able to do that if you can't persuade yourself first, mm-hmm. right? So that's why... I believe like that being a great negotiator isn't everybody, right? We all have it. It's never, you're not smart enough. It's never that you don't know the right strategies. It's like, get out of your own way. And once you do that, then I dare say both enjoyable and not so difficult. Oh, yes. Let's have another coaching session. This is a (laughs) podcast turn coaching session for AJ. Um, But I think that's really important because it's like, you do like even subconsciously start to think about negotiation in a way of like win or lose. That's not a real thing. Like we, no one has to lose. No one has to lose in this. And I do think there is so much negative connotation around the idea of negotiation. So I'm curious, like, where do you think that comes from? Like even in my subconscious where I'm an extraordinarily, unusually confident human being, but for me to even like subconsciously think fighting chance, like, when it comes to negotiation, like where do you think that comes from? 
I think society in a lot of ways, right? Again, like what we see in movies, what we see on TV, what we read. And I think that maybe just maybe the more sort of other examples that we see of really sort of these successful negotiators, women who are tremendous at this, by the way, talk about sort of the bad stories, but the more examples we have of people who don't espouse those other sort of characteristics Uh and when we can actually change the paradigm of how we we see negotiations, we reimagine it, and it becomes something that we all understand that we're so capable and competent of doing, but use it in a way that speaks to you, right? Make it your voice that matters, not what you are told that you should say or how you should pretend to be. I mean, there's more pretense in what people are taught, right? There's more, you know, negotiations is not like baking a cake, right? I who am I to tell you if you say this word and that word, and if you do this and you act like this, you're going to succeed? First of all, that's not true. Um, <laughs> it can't possibly be true, right? It's going to fail probably as many times as it's going to succeed. Totally. But the moment that we realize that living in our truth, living in our purpose, honoring our values, honoring ourselves, that those things are fundamentally not just what will make us successful in life but successful thereby in negotiations. I think the moment we embrace that, then we realize that in a world that we're told to be everything that we're not, Mm -hmm. to stand up and be courageous and be exactly who you are, Mm. what else is there? Mm. I love that. You know, and you said something earlier that, you know, really resonated with me, but then also with so many of the people that I, I get to interact with on a daily basis, both personally and professionally. And it's setting up non-negotiables. Right. And I think that's a huge, a huge part of negotiation, but also of confidence of knowing it's like there's wiggle room, but then I have my non-negotiables and there's no wiggle room there. And so I've heard you say, and maybe it was our conversation, maybe it was in the book. I don't remember at this point, but it's like, and that negotiation is not an issue of skill. It's more to do with self-worth and confidence. Can we talk about that for just a minute? Like to hear that negotiation is not a skill thing. It's a belief thing. I mean, that's really different because it's like every other negotiation training book, seminar that I've ever been to are very, very sales oriented, very skills oriented. It's words to use, body language, tone of voice, you know, you know, all the things. So to hear it's not a skill issue. It's a self-worth. It's a confidence issue really puts it in a different place of perspective. I want to hear your thoughts on that. I'll probably be best at describing that if I give you an example. But before I go there, again, the hardest part is that knowing yourself, knowing your self-worth. And this is after thousands of people that I've taught. It could be CEOs of major corporations. It could be professional athletes. People who you would never imagine have issues with sort of self-worth or imposter syndrome as we imagine it, but they do. Yeah. And so time and time again, it goes back to this issue of knowing your value, right? And not just knowing it, but being able to courageously and fearlessly advocate for it. And so I feel like if you can do that, then I don't teach rocket science. Anybody who tells you that they're, you know, you have to learn all of these skills before you can negotiate successfully is just not being honest because the fact is that those are first of all, really easy, Right. Learning how to prepare for negotiations is not rocket science, right? Learning what kinds of things you should consider in preparation. 
not rocket science. You know what's rocket science? What's really hard is knowing your self-worth because only then can you actually set goals that are aspirational and worthy of you. And then once you set those goals, then you can actually go to the table and ask for those things. And then once you can ask for those things, then you actually get it. But if that first piece is not done, then all the skills in the world are not going to get you through that journey without you folding, right? So grounding yourself and knowing yourself is really important. You talked about non-negotiables. Non-negotiables are generally things that are like our values, our convictions, things that if you give them away, you are no longer whole, no matter how successful the outcome of the negotiations is, right? It's the stuff we can't live with ourselves if we put those, whether it's lying, whether whatever it is, right? So even those things have nothing necessarily to do with financials or the sort of the tangibles. It's the intangibles that matter, right? Now, the example that I was going to give you, the best negotiators, right? If you've gone through 65 trainings, read every book, listened to the podcast, you know, I'm so ready, right? I've watched every movie, I've got it. Right. But what you really struggle with is sort of fear and anxiety, or even like maybe even lack of self belief. There's all these studies that are done that say, like, we have somewhere between 12,000 to 60,000 thoughts a day. Of those thoughts, 80% of them are negative. Mm -hmm. Right. So the minute you go down that rabbit hole and you fall back into that one behavior you have not chosen to address which is the fear, the anxiety, the stories that you tell yourself, you just go in a tailspin. You will not remember what it said on page 37 of that book, right? That's, you so, true. That's so true. You can hardly see the person sitting across from you straight because cognitively your fear has blocked you from doing that. So you're in your head, you can't be present, you're fearful. That now affects everything, big or small, that you've learned and you've been told to do. And now you're sitting there in a pile of fear. Mm -hmm. And how do you get through that? You don't know because you hadn't addressed what was most important, which is those things that really you struggled with internally. So that's why I say the skill thing, easy breezy. The internal stuff, right? The mindset work, the lack of self-love, lack of self-worth, lack of understanding why your why just in general, that's the really, really hard stuff that if you can accomplish that, then that's why I said skills. EQ is so much more important than IQ in any negotiations, any day of the week, right? That's what gives you sort of strategic advantage. Why? Because it tells you how to be present. It tells you how to listen. It tells you the people side is far more difficult skills. Anybody can learn. Yeah. Oh, I love this. It just brings up a fear that I often hear from people who are working on their personal brand or who want to become more well-known for something. But what their real fear is, is do I really have anything to add to the conversation? And I love this so much because being in a world of sales for a very long time, there's a lot of talk on negotiation. I have literally probably read a dozen books, been to twice as many conferences or seminars, heard speakers on these attended webinars. And I have never heard negotiation discussed the way that you're discussing it today. And if we would just lean more into the uniqueness that is just naturally within us, it's like, I wish this was the conversation that was had with me when I was starting out at 22 and 23, like how much further ahead I would be if it was 
not about reading body language and, you know, say these words and do it at this time. And, but it was more about like, do you know what you're going in for? Right. Do you know what you really want? Do you know what the outcome is that you wish to have? It's like, do you know your non-negotiables? Like, do you know your own self-worth? Like, do you even know what you're negotiating for? Right. It's like, how often are we just, in my perspective, it's to my comment I made earlier. It's like, sometimes it's just a battle. It's like, well, I'm just going into win. Right. And it's like, well, right. Is what's that old saying? You can win the battle and still lose the war. Right. It's like, do we even know what we're, we're going in to conversate with? I think this is such a great reminder to anyone who is listening. It's like, regardless of what you feel called to talk about, I assure you the way you're going to talk about it is different than how anyone else is going to talk about it because they're not you. This is a great example of that in this conversation. And I should have probably added before and thinking as you're saying this is like another really great attribute of negotiators, great negotiators is that they're storytellers, Mm. really, really great storytellers. And that's how we move people, right? That's how we influence people. That's how we persuade people. And it's the story you tell yourself, but it's also the stories that you can share with other people, the opening up, the vulnerability, the letting people in, but we've been told that you should not. And I'm not saying be vulnerable in every negotiations, but just even vulnerable to yourself, right? And that sort of deep understanding of yourself, but learning to tell your story It's the brand builder's way, right? But it's knowing how to do that fearlessly and knowing that that's how you change people's minds and hearts. A great quote in this notion of people may forget what you said and they may forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. How do we make people feel some way? Mm -hmm. We tell that story, we bring them in. And that you can't learn in books. That you have to first believe and then have the courage to share. Oh, I love this. I could continue this conversation uh, for another hour and uh, I still have more questions, but I want to make sure people know where to go to check out this book, bring yourself. So more, where should they go to learn more about you and learn more about becoming that great negotiator that is already within? So everything's on my website. So if they go to moritaheriport.com, the information about the book, I've got a newsletter that you can sign up for. Everything's there. I'm on social media. The book itself, you can find at any outlet that sells books. So Amazon and Penguin Random House, it's actually the publisher, Barnes and Nobles, all of it. So not too hard to find. It is out there. All right. Well, I will make sure to put your website link in the show notes. Everyone spells it correctly. You can go to Amazon, type in, bring yourself. I'll put all your social handles in the show notes. And before we sign off, I have one last question for you that has nothing to do with negotiation or publishing or teaching or anything. But since it came up today, this is help me and help our audience get to know you. What would you say are three non-negotiables in your life that you're like, these are three non-negotiables for me? I don't lie. It's a good one. (laughs) I'm horrible at it. That's probably one of the reasons why Like, I can't keep up with a lie to save my life. And so I just feel like the reputational risk is so... So huge and so damaging that I've learned from mistakes and not even like business mistakes, but like mom and asking me 30 questions that I'm like, I lost you at eight. Right. So can't do that. That's a good, I love that. Okay. That's good. Not having the really hard conversations. I want to just, if it's there, let's just talk about it. Right. That's another thing I've learned. I carried the burden of 
those difficult conversations for a really long time. I lived with MS. I was diagnosed with MS in 2010. The burden of stress and all the rest of it hasn't gotten the best of me, but it definitely has taught me that the minute you can release that stress and the stress of sort of holding back things that are important to you or things that need to get cleared away, then it's just so much healthier for your mind, your body, your spirit, all of it. Mm, Love that. I don't want to be in any kind of a relationship, business or otherwise, with people who have little thought for others that have no empathy, that just don't care. Here I go getting emotional again. I don't even understand it, but I feel like I see so much of that. We see so much of that in our world and it honestly breaks my heart. And I know that I can't control all that happens, but I can certainly control those people who I want to associate with. And I feel like that we owe everybody more than that. So that's really important for me is for people to, to just care about others. Oh, I love that. Those are so good. I think this is a good practice for all of us, right? Leaving this show. It's like, if nothing else, it's like spend some time thinking about what are the non-negotiables in your life. And I love those more. I think those are so good. I have so enjoyed having on the show, getting to know you more, getting to learn from you and also getting a mini coaching session. So uh, anytime, anytime. Lots of, lots of bonuses for me. Y'all stay tuned. I'm going to record our recap episode. That'll be live next. Make sure you check out the book, Bring Yourself, and make sure you come back for another episode on the influential personal brand. We'll see you next time. Thank you, AJ. That's all we've got for this episode of the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. But here's some great news. One of the most valuable things you can do to help us and other new potential listeners to find our show is for you to both rate this show and leave a review. So as a special bonus for you, if you leave us a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen, take a screenshot of your review and email it to podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. We will give you free 30-day access to 25 of our most popular interviews on video in your own private members-only area. So go right now, rate us, review us, and then send a screenshot of it into podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. And we'll get you set up with free access to our most popular video interviews all in one place. Also, just please share, share, share this podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And until next time, remember that building a business isn't nearly as valuable as building a reputation. 